Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I think these two pages, or page and a half, were some of like the, the best stuff I've read all year, where what you do is you place two statements uh, in uh, contrast to each other, both of which are being promulgated by people who are concerned about uh, the power di- differential, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, they are intellectually in opposition to each other. The catechism of contradictions, that's right. Yes, it's, uh, so for example, um, show interest in multiculturalism, very reasonable. Um, do not culturally appropriate when it is not your culture, it is not for you, and you may not try it or do it. You stay away. And right. so it's like, okay, I'm supposed to show an interest, and yet if I somehow go too far, then I, I will be and guilty of, of something. All, right. right? Mimic it, right. Um, silence about racism is violence. It's like, okay, I, I need to say something. And then elevate the voices of the oppressed over your own, which is like, look, I can't say anything unless right. I am of the oppressed class. And some people say it's a happy medium, just don't say too much. But the thing is, it's so easy to be called saying too much. Where is that medium? Nobody is ever allowed to strike it. Exactly. You must strive eternally to understand the experiences of black people. You can never understand what it is to be black. And if you think you do, you're a racist. You're racist if you think you get it. Right. Yes. Uh, So they, you can see why people are kind of like uh, tiptoeing, hot potatoing um, through this so that these, these statements, it is uh, to me, maybe the most powerful one, black people cannot be held accountable for everything every black person does. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Um, all whites must acknowledge their personal complicitness in the, perf- <laughs> the perfidy of whiteness throughout history. And it's different because of power. And so if you, if you have power, then you're all complicit. If you don't have power, everything is individual. Yeah. Who said, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It, again. And, and maybe it's because I've been around the country, but like that Iowa farmer in the diner would be like, you're complicit. Like I've been sitting here in the cornfields for eight generations. Like, you know, what the hell did I do? This week on Forward, we welcome Columbia Linguistics professor John McWhorter to talk about his new book, Woke Racism, which I really enjoyed the heck out of. Met him on Bill Maher, and he's on Forward this week. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the Forward podcast 
Columbia linguistics professor and author of this incredible book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America, John McWhorter. Welcome, John. Thank you, Andrew. I think I remember that book. <laughs> well, now, I mean, you're talking about it probably uh, all the time, though that might be coming to an end. Your press tour may, may finally this be. This is the very end of it. This is the last interview. Yes. 5,000. That's right. <laughs> uh, so you and I met uh, in L.A. on Bill Maher's show. We did. Uh, and so I think this should be the beginning of a new tradition where anyone who's, who's on a panel together has to, to then talk for real. As <laughs> <after, laughs> yeah. they come together. <laughs> um, but I bought your book immediately after you and I shared that stage. I'm flattered. Read it, loved it, think Good. it's so important. Uh, and I wanted to ask first and foremost, how has the experience been uh, doing press for the book, promoting it, all of that jazz? Because I'd imagine some of the reactions would be uh, varied, shall we say. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I was expecting with woke racism to have to deal with an awful lot of blowback because what I'm saying are things people don't want to hear. And this time it's not one of these John McWhorter makes black people angry books. This one is really written mostly for white people. And I thought now it's going to be a whole lot of white people hating me. To tell you the truth, I'm pleased to say that the book has done what I actually hoped it would, which is to speak to center and left of center America, people who are concerned about race, people who want to do the right thing, but are falling for an idea that striking poses is doing the right thing and that that's how you replicate what happened in the past. And I think people get it. I think people actually see that, that that's what the book means. The book's point is not everybody just stop talking about race. I think a lot of people are kind of waiting for the book to be about that so they can jump on me about it. But it's not that. So to tell you the truth, of the 400,000, <laughs> I've only had two or three where I had really obnoxious pushback where I had to really work hard. And I think that's just because the book isn't saying anything all that unusual. I'm just saying, folks, let's really help people instead of talking about it and striking poses and saying things we don't believe, because those things don't help people. You, you talk about striking poses. I think the other thing you reference in the book is living in fear. It's like living in fear does not help black people. <laughs> so much of what we're told to say is just people afraid of being called white supremacists on Twitter. Nobody wants to be called that on Twitter. It's hard to be hated for most people. Most people aren't up for that. And so I think that what we're seeing now is the idea that, say somebody says, all disparities between black people and other people are due to racism. Somebody says, when I see disparities of that kind, I see racism. And let's say that that person has a kind of a solemn demeanor. Let's say that that person wears dreadlocks and a suit at the same time, and so that looks kind of, kind of deep. And you think, I'm supposed to believe that. I know deep down that no social history is as simple as that. All disparities are not due to discrimination or even something abstract like systemic racism. That's clearly not the case. But you're supposed to believe it. You're afraid of being called a name if you say you don't believe it. And so you pretend to. But that means we're having a very fake conversation. And a fake conversation is not what black uplift is supposed to be about. Fake conversation is not what black uplift is supposed to be about. Uh, you should have named the book that, John. I think you missed a... <laughs> <laughs> and then make that an acronym or something? Yeah. 
Also, there were a couple of, of things I picked up from the, the book. One is you're a literal linguistics professor. So I, I love how precise you are in language. <laughs> I feel like you should have a naming consultancy. Do you have that? Do companies come to you and say, hey, we've got this product? Does that you happen? You know, Andrew, I worked for a company like that once about 30 years ago for about 10 minutes. I wasn't that good at it. Like, they, no. here's this product. Come <laughs> up with a name. It's like, call it, I, I don't know. But as a linguist, part of you is that you try to say exactly what you mean. And that is what this book was. Although, to tell you the truth, a lot of this book is me in the summer of 2020 on a screened in sun porch late at night after my kids went to bed with a glass of wine or sometimes something stronger and just typing my heart out, just thinking I'm really angry at these things going on. And somebody needs to say something and maybe they need to be black and middle-aged. And that's what I did. But yeah, I tried to make it very clear what I meant because it's so easy to be misinterpreted on anything. And especially when you're talking about these sensitive race issues. When you talk about the feedback you get post-interview, how do you measure it? So one, one thing is you go onto a TV studio and then you have a particular interaction with journalists and like some of them are benign and some of them you could tell they're trying to stick it to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what's funny is some of the interviews I saw you do, they did exactly what um, you said they someone would do in the book is when you say, hey, this is a problem, they'd be like, isn't this the worst problem? And you're like, that. well, I'm not saying that that is not a problem, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm saying right. that this is itself something that we should uh, be concerned about. Yeah, the biggest pushback against this book, well, one of them is that I don't know enough about religion to be pronouncing upon this as a religion. And that's true. I don't know that much about it. And if I were a religious person, I would be insulted by this book because I can tell that people smell that I'm very impatient with religious belief. And that's true. That's the subject of another book, but it's created problems in, in my life. So there is that impatience. But I get the feeling the main pushback lately is that the things going on on the right are a more serious problem. And that me writing about this takeover of wokeness is just some trivial business that will pass and that I'm exaggerating. And I respectfully disagree. For one thing, it's not just academia. I'm not just writing about some things happening to some professors. It's really gotten much bigger than that. And I just think that if you really believe that a culture of mendacity and prosecution taking over how we are supposed to think, how we're supposed to research, how we're supposed to do art, and how we're supposed to moralize. If anybody really thinks that that's all just some trivia because of what happened on January 6th, and because there are Republicans who are trying to disenfranchise black people and not actually not doing it very well on the ground, which I consider a relief, if you really don't think that what I'm writing about is important, either you are one of the people I write about in the book, or you've been trained to think that because you're afraid of being called a white supremacist on Twitter. I think these things are very important. I think in some countries, nobody would ask whether it was important that academia and the arts were being taken over. And it, by it's this also regime. it is also media and it is seeped into politics. Uh, and on a personal level, I remember the first time I was called a white supremacist and I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was like very, very confusing to yeah. me. Uh, maybe because like I, I just thought it was so ridiculous. Like, uh, you know, it, it's possible that, that it, it didn't hurt me or frighten me in the way it, it would many others. Um, but now things like that have happened to me, frankly, often enough where you, you do become kind of over it. <laughs> where, where you're like, After All a while, right. it's, like, it's just, yeah, it's yeah, like gnats. And yeah. it... it um, so I, I'm going to make a couple of observations about the importance of what you're talking about in terms of our politics. Mm -hmm. So you write in the book that uh, that 
this belief system is primarily concerned with what you call the power differential. And it's like the power differential between whites and blacks, mm -hmm. primarily, though there are, there are different constructions. And whites and different in groups. general, especially white men. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I spent a lot of time campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire, which were the first two uh, caucus and, you know, Biggest. the early voting states, caucus and primary, respectively. Uh, and they're predominantly white. Iowa is, say, 94% white. New Hampshire is 92% white. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you go to people in those environments and say, hey, the biggest problem facing us is you is the power differential <laughs> between uh, whites and non-whites. And uh, you, if you are white, you need to really reflect upon uh, your racism uh, and your behavior. Um, it, it's, it's really counterproductive is, uh, I guess, a, a, you know, euphemism for, for what it is, in part because let's say you're a farmer in Iowa, your life might not be, you know, sunshine and roses. Like it might actually be quite difficult. There, there, there might be, yeah, it might be very, yeah. very difficult. And so when you get presented with something that kind of presumes that you're at the top of a hierarchy and, uh, and that you're sitting pretty and that the suffering of others is what you should be most concerned about, you're a little bit like, well, you know, my life is, not, is very difficult. Um, and it, would, may, may, it might even be difficult for me to be overtly racist as a behavior because there might not be anyone non-white around for me to even be, <laughs> right. be racist towards. Right. Uh, you're sitting in a diner, everybody's white, you're eating your eggs. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at some of the traditional battleground states that Democrats have been losing ground in, uh, they are Ohio, Missouri, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, states that aren't as predominantly white as Iowa, uh, but they're still majority white. Um, and so if, if this is one of the things you're leading with uh, as a political party, um, then it actually can really push voters the other direction. One of my favorite insights that you get from genuinely really smart people these days on the left is that what you just said doesn't matter. You know, the new hot idea is that that messaging does not affect the vote. It has nothing to do with how that kind of possible swing voter feels about Democrats. And so you condescend to them. You tell that white guy sitting there in the diner. He's not sure how his farm's going to do. Even the people back in the kitchen are white and you tell him that he has white privilege because of his white skin and because of the history of the country. And he doesn't get it and he sees that you look down on him for not getting it. To say that that somehow doesn't matter, I think that comes from people who are just so wedded to the supposed wisdom of that message that they can't stand to hear it criticized, even when we're talking about whether the Democrats are gonna have real power in the future of this country. I think a lot of people genuinely think if we have to give up talking in that way, if we have to give up preaching that message, then we are not ourselves. I think they'd rather lose elections than consider how to break bread with real people in the real world. It's dangerous. It really does worry me because I'm not a Republican and I don't think I'm gonna be anytime soon, especially lately. But this messaging really doesn't work. The reason that people will fight for it this hard, and the point of the book is to a large extent, it's because these people think of this as beyond question. This isn't just a political opinion, this idea about the power differentials. This is a religious message that grounds a certain kind of person's very sense of why they're on this earth. They must preach that good news. But that's not the attitude you take when you want to win elections with real people beyond college towns.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, so we're going to go into the substance uh, of uh, how you characterize this this belief system, which uh, I found fascinating. I'm just going to draw one more example about um, this infiltrating politics, uh, this kind of terminology for a different group. So a poll recently came out that said that approximately 2% of uh, Latinos or Hispanics uh, refer to themselves as Latinx, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that something like... 30% 30% of people found Latinx off-putting and like it would it. make them less likely to vote for <laughs> the candidate or group that is employing this term. Uh, so to me, the obvious thing is like, well, maybe you don't want to use this term because 98% of people don't think of themselves this way and a third or so are going to like you less if you use it. So where did this term come from? And it, it came from academic circles who are, uh, I believe, trying to address what, what they saw as um, like a, a gender sexism. issue, yeah, right. gender issue in the term Latino. Right. Um, uh, so if, if your goal is to win elections, uh, have control of Congress, you can maybe make positive things happen. Then you would look at this and say, well, like th- this seems like a terrible uh, idea or like a term that is, is very, very counterproductive. And so to your point, it's like, well, then what is the argument for it? And it's some kind of um, ideological correctness that treats uh, voter responses as secondary or irrelevant. If you say Latinx, a certain sliver of the population applauds you. And that may strike you as the main goal, even if it's only a sliver, and even if a significant proportion of the people who aren't applauding even find it off-putting. That's a weird situation unless you see this rather liturgical aspect to it. I mean, as far as I can see, Latinx is going to become a term used by people within highly educated circles. It's not going to spread beyond. And you could think of it as harmless. It's, it's going to be the way a certain kind of person, usually with a PhD or something close to it, says something that you say in those circles. Most people are never going to say it. I live in Jackson well, well, Heights. Well, well the, the issue is that what happens is you have political figures who are surrounded by professional staffers who will say, use this term. Mm-hmm. Because they are of that mind. Yes. And they figure we need to please a certain kind of person. But suppose it isn't the majority. It's not about the world that we live in. In the neighborhood that I live in, 
I don't know the statistics, but frankly, it feels to me as if every second person is Latino. You hear as much Spanish as English on the street, if not more. I have never heard the term Latinx used by any of those people. And I'm sure these are the people who often reject it. That has nothing to do with their worldview. Are we interested in their vote? I would think we'd be more interested in their vote than in the vote of people who went to college and listened to NPR and read The Nation. But instead, there's almost a kind of elitism, but it's not elitism. It's that these people feel this as a religious duty. They wouldn't put it that way, but it's a religious duty. And sometimes you might let religion supplant what actually makes sense from A to B to C if you feel you're serving some larger purpose. And I, I am very pragmatic, so I'm all about like, okay, what's going to work? Uh, I named universal basic income the freedom dividend because it tested better with conservatives. <laughs> There's out of you have the word freedom in there, they like it more. Uh, so let, let's do a bit of level setting as we get into the the substance of what you say in your book, uh, why you characterize this as, as uh, religious. So a, a few things I think that we agree on, uh, just to put them out there. So racism is real; it's a real thing. It's there. Uh, America is vastly unequal uh, in terms of particularly uh, by no, race. No even playing field and is partly conditioned by race. That's right. And it would be a good thing to try and have policies that reduce that inequality uh, and help black people. It is part of bringing us closer to our ideals. Yes. Yes. So uh, I'm on board with those three things. I know you I'm are too. Most people. <laughs> right. So, right. So, so after you establish those three, three things, then it's like, okay, how do we actually try and make something positive happen? And this is where you diverge very mm -hmm. uh, significantly and I believe correctly <laughs> from, from this uh, orthodoxy you described. So um, you call this group of people and their belief system the elect, which I found very interesting. Um, I think the way that people describe it out in uh, the world would be something about like wokeness or uh, political correctness it's what or something else. most people think of as woke now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so how did the, the elect get started? Uh, it started in uh, legal scholarship, right? A lot of this traces partly to Foucault and a way of looking at literature where there's no such thing as truth and everything is about the position of the person who wrote it. These are things that went on in academia. A lot of that gets crystallized in what critical race theory began as, which is a few legal scholars, mostly of color, who argued that we need to reconceive our sense of how justice works because of the evil of racism, because of power differentials, because of the experience of someone who's below as opposed to someone who's above. And these people had some extremist views about how, say, vigilante justice should work, about how a person who's not white and especially a man should think of themselves and your primary sense of self should be a sense that you are a victim of the operations of other people. All of this stuff is, it's strong brew it's not crazy. I don't think it's something that would ever be embraced by most people, but it was just there. That has trickled down. So this in, was Kimberly Crenshaw, Sir and Richard Witcher. Delgado, Regina Austin, Derek Bell. All of this got really popular, especially in the mid 80s. Yeah. And if you, you know, hung around the campus scene. They were in my law school textbooks, by the way. Go, they were in there and these yeah. people would visit campus. I remember once listening to Derek Bell at a black graduation ceremony, this would be circa 1994, openly saying, genially, but openly saying, you know, you you guys are gonna get your butts kicked out there. You've got to really watch it. The world is set against you. And that was considered a positive message at the ceremony. People ate it up. But that was a fringe thing. 
most people didn't think the way Derrick Bell did. And he had some books that got around, but they partly got around because his ideas were so strong and seemed almost eccentric. They were interesting. It was There was almost a drive-by aspect to his ideas. And you kind of, I hate to put it this way, but you thought of him as kind of an eccentric. He had good ideas. He made you think. But most people didn't think like Derrick Bell. It trickles through the 90s and the aughts into a more general idea that you're supposed to place battling power differentials at the center of any kind of endeavor that takes mental candle power. It's the arts, it's intellectual, it's legal. And it's one thing to want to battle differentials in power. Power corrupts, certainly it does. But for that to be the thing where if you step aside from battling power differentials, you were ruled to be some kind of moral pervert, that's something that crystallizes in academia slowly. It had become a problem even in the teens. And then our racial reckoning really focused it because people who thought that way acquired a kind of an authority over the populace that they hadn't had before. So power differentials, let's say that's one of 10 things that you're interested in. That's the way it was circa 2010. These people are saying that power differentials are supposed to be everything. And what makes it really hard is that they don't think of it that way. They're not thinking, don't think about 10 things, think only about power differentials. All they know is that they think of the power differentials as central. They can't imagine why anybody wouldn't who's a moral person. So you say, why only this? And for them, you're asking them to question truth itself. So it's a very delicate discussion, but I really do think we need to realize what these people are so frustrating because of is that they think of the power differentials as what we must hold front and center all the time. Most of us don't feel that way. So this fixation on uh, this particular um, power relationship yeah. uh, starts out in elite law schools and elite universities. And, and I will say, I think that it's stronger in elite universities and environments. Like if you go to a random uh, state school someplace, like I'm, I'm not sure if it's uh, as prevalent, particularly if you were in like, let's say a part of the Midwest. And, and maybe that's partially because of a... Um, I hear it's changing, but I know what general phenomenon you mean. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and then that ends up um, very, very influential in the media, I think, in large part because a lot of people who were trained in certain environments then uh, head to media organizations. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are based here in New York. Um, yep. Or uh, L.A. Or yep. L.A. So, so you, you have um, this uh, very, very significant part of the culture gets into... Uh, really just about all of our forms of media, I'd say at this point, um, TV, film, Permeated, definitely. Uh, journalism, yeah. for sure. Um, it gets compounded by social media, which is used to kind of enforce a certain conformity. <laughs> social media really focuses this because Twitter and Facebook become default in 09. And of course, that doesn't mean the world changed overnight. But by the early teens, we were in a new world. That kind of person is very active on Twitter. That kind of person kind of defines Twitter in many places. And next thing you know, a certain assertion starts happening. Yeah, yeah I, I think that there is a very, very powerful feedback loop between Twitter and the media. Exactly. Um, because media takes their cues from Twitter, this group, as you're describing. I, I think if you take Twitter out of the equation, then you know it's actually difficult to, to enforce. <laughs> if there were no Twitter, this wouldn't have happened. That's right. They couldn't have had this disproportionate influence. Derek Bell saying some colorful things at a commencement is one thing. But a Derek Bell who's 27 and is on Twitter all day, that's different.
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you write in the book about why different people find this fixation on the power differential uh, appealing. Mm-hmm. as a belief system. Uh, so I, I'd love for you to, to unpack that a little bit. How did this gain so much uh, currency and power? It gained power partly because if you are an elect, you feel that you have a mission. You feel that you're seeing further than most people who wouldn't like that. You have a sense of community with people who are as on fire about these things as you. But you know, to tell you the truth, a lot of it is, and I think we all feel this way about certain things, you feel smarter than the average bear you see further. Battling power differentials, you're the one who sees how important that is. And so there you go. And you're helping to save black people. We have progress in this country in that people are so ashamed of being racist. That's a good thing. If you're an elect, then you've got that covered because you have devoted your whole heart and soul to battling racism and supposedly saving black people. If you're black and you fall for this, it's different and it's hard to talk about, especially for me. But you can fall for the victimhood mindset. The victimization mindset is something that psychologists recognize as a human trait. It's not about black people, it's human. There's a certain kind of person who exaggerates their victimhood. You can only do it if your life is really pretty much okay. You exaggerate your victimhood and you dismiss the victimhood of other people and you derive your sense of significance from you being a survivor of this supposed victimization. That's a mindset. We all know the tattletale, we all know the martyr. Black America has a way of ODing on that because it's such a terrible history we've got in this country, treated like animals for hundreds of years, and Jim Crow, slavery, even talk about redlining. And then there are even things today, depending on how you feel about microaggressions. It can be hard to be proud of being black. It's easy to fall for the idea that being black is inferior. What do you do about that? There are all sorts of things. One thing a black person might do is to grab onto this idea that what makes you special is that you are a victim of this ongoing onslaught of racism that you and your people deal with every day. I think all of us can understand how that would be a tempting 
way of processing the world if there's a hole inside of you, if there's a hole in black America's soul. And I think many people, if they didn't hear me saying it, would agree completely. There is a hole. One way to fill it is to manufacture a sense of victimhood and to build your identity around your being a noble survivor. Anybody would do that given black people's history. But that's what it is. And so white people and black people in this elect religion end up doing a kind of a dance. White people pretend to agree with this characterization of what being black is like. Black people give white people a certain kind of power. We absolve white people of their sin to an extent. But none of this has anything to do with black people having real problems, including racially conditioned systemic racism type ones out in the real world. This little dance is like this cotillion that people are having while the rest of the world burns. And I'm hoping to make people realize that's what's going on. Yes, I, I agree that the, there are real fundamental problems and let's work on those um, as opposed to monitoring someone's statement on social media as if, if you just got that right, then all would then, be well. Right, <laughs> like like, somehow you know, that like, connects with this, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to share some uh, stories from my childhood to give you a sense as to, to my reaction and one reason why I, I believe that um, what you're saying is so important. So I grew up one of the only Asian kids in my school. My school is predominantly white. Um, there were two black kids. Um, there were, you know, two Asian kids. It was like, like that kind of school. Um, and so it was very tough to be uh, black. It was tough to be Asian. Um, the culture was somewhat different. It was like the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, like you remember, like there, there wasn't exactly a surplus of. <laughs> I remember this well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I got taunted for being Asian all the time. Um, and the, the black kids had it tough too. Jewish kid had it tough. Um, and so there is like this sense that I have from my upbringing um, that, you know, like uh, that racism uh, is something um, that uh, I think uh, is uh, present um, in a lot of people in some form in terms of their like attitudes towards different people. Um, and that because of that, I, I don't have any thoughts that's like, oh, we're going to be in a place where you don't notice that I'm Asian. Like, I mean, that, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> no such thing. Yeah. yeah and, and so then the, the question really is how do we try and uh, make concrete changes in the real world? I'm like less interested in policing people's thoughts or even to some extent uh, their statements um, and I'm, I'm more concerned about trying to move things around in the real world that, that will make um, a difference, uh, make things positive. I will also comment that if you were a non-white kid in that era of 80s and 90s, like blackness was the only cool way to not be white, <laughs> if you know what I mean, Definitely. which is one of the reasons why you had all of these. These uh, hip-hopping. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I had baggy jeans, uh, you know, like, like the, the whole thing. And there were a lot mm -hmm. of white kids in the suburbs who bought the FUBU the and like thing. the rest of it. I mean, you know, right. that, that was like the, um, like, uh, especially in my case as an Asian boy, I felt like my masculinity was always in question. There's that trope. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so then, and, and so, uh, you know, um, black culture was a way it's like, oh, this is what non-white masculinity is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and I'm 70s. I'm a, I'm a little bit older and um, I got some trouble for being black. I grew up in very similar environments. There were two Asians that I remember in my 
my private school, there were some black people, but it was white people who called the tune. And I'm from, I can't believe how old I'm getting, I'm 56. I'm from even before hip hop. And so in the 70s, there wasn't yet this idea that people who weren't black could pretend to be. That hadn't quite happened yet. And so the white kids were just being white. If anything, they liked hard rock, which I never understood. And the black kids, well, you dealt with stuff. And what I don't get about today is that I'm supposed to say, you hurt me by saying something or by not saying something. A generation before me, black person, wouldn't have been hurt, but I am now. I feel like that is giving into something. I'm saying that I'm in the down position. I'm pretending a that, certain vulnerability. That there is. A, I would never want to do that. There, there is know? some of that where it's like, um, you know, when I was a kid and someone uh, called me like gook or something, be confused, maybe hurt and the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at a certain point, you feel like the natural reaction uh, instead of screaming injustice on social media would be just fuck you. You can't hurt me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. it, um, but the, no, that's not the current idea. And so, yeah, if somebody even called me the N word, whoever it was, chances are there'd be something kind of wrong with them. And my idea would be if you did that, I'm looking down upon you. Just who are you? And now I'm going to go do whatever I was doing. But no, I'm supposed to, you know, jump onto a bed and cry into the yeah, pillow. No, I, I was know. told to go back to my country, like, you know, uh, not that long ago. But the person who said it was clearly mentally ill. So, so like, am I, right. Yeah. Go back to where you came from. <laughs> How stupid is that? Yeah. Basically. So, you know, but I, like person was, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, they needed help. So, uh, <laughs> so there is, um, so the, this movement has uh, has some currency, um, and you say that look, this is actually counterproductive for Black people in the real world. And you have a, a few examples in your book that I thought were very, very powerful and important. So on one hand, it's like, hey, let's try and moder moderate people's or uh, you know monitor people's behaviors and statements. And then you were like, look, it's actually hurting Black kids right now because here are the real issues and one one you put out there was uh trying to um improve the discipline and behavior of uh, middle school kids mm -hmm. and if you go and say hey look like i'm not going to enforce standards because uh like these black kids cannot be expected to conform behave. To, to behave or conform to these standards you mm -hmm. know like that's actually a profound disservice to the kids themselves yeah and that's one of these things there's a meme out there, which is that black boys are suspended for violence disproportionately, not because in a great many schools, black boys are more violent than the others. Now, just let that drop. You're not even supposed to say it. Nevertheless, as unpleasant as the fact is, it's true. It couldn't be because of that. It must be because of bias. Now, the way to look at it is to pull the camera back. Why are the black boys so often more violent? And poverty has a lot to do with violence fatherlessness has a lot to do with violence. And everybody knows that there is a lot of fatherlessness in many underserved black communities. And why is that? You can talk about the war on drugs. You can talk about all sorts of things, but it's there. There's a reason why the black boys might be more violent, but nevertheless, they are. And studies have proven this again and again and again. Any big city that you live in, probably journalists at the big newspaper, if there still is one, have gone out trying to find this bias and didn't find it, study after study. And yet there's this idea that there's this bias against black boys and the three Bs are seen as somehow being some kind of truth, like alliteration is truth. And the thing is, if teachers hold back and don't suspend 
black boys for violence, which has happened. What happens is that, big surprise, the schools get more violent, the grade point average of the school goes down. And I think some people are thinking, well, good, because those white and Asian kids in the school, they deserve that violence because it's going to get back at all of the things that have been done for black. No, no, no. Because you have to remember that fact that everybody knows, that a disproportionate number of black kids go to all black schools. It's so just hurting it's other black kids. Black kids who are being hurt. Yeah. Nobody wants to talk about it. And so there's a kind of person, and it's not that I think this person knows all of this and insists on soldiering ahead. All of us go through life looking through a little, a little hole. But there's a certain kind of person who stands up there in a suit talking about the bias against black boys, and everybody claps. And they're not thinking about the fact that if those boys aren't disciplined, other black boys and girls are being beaten up in these schools, along with often the teachers. It should matter. Yes, uh, you had a, another um, problem, which you called Yale or jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was, uh, yeah. and, and what you're suggesting is that, look, uh, it, it's not that if you don't go to uh, Yale, then all of a sudden there's nothing waiting for you but, uh, you know, Street. ruin. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that there's like a multitude of these... On the highway, that's right. Yeah. Uh, of, of these other opportunities and that sometimes putting uh, students in environments that aren't the best fit for them actually ends up hurting their ambitions. Uh, I think you cited a study where um, you have fewer scientists because they if they go into some of these courses um, uh, and... Uh, majors that they, they uh, end up um, being pushed out of them, whereas if they were in another environment, then they, they might actually finish and then uh, become that scientist. Yep, you see it again and again. And, you know, there are some counter studies that are being done that are nibbling at the edges of some of the specific claims of that work. But the larger truth is painfully obvious and not refuted, which is that if a kid is admitted to a school where everything is going to happen faster than they're prepared for, they're not going to do as well. They're not going to have a good time. They're going to leave disenchanted. And that's just there, and no study can eat away at that. There have been some things said about STEM in particular. STEM is one of many subjects that people can major in in school about which nothing has been said. And what it means is that to insist that you have a certain percentage of, for example, black kids at elite schools and that you're going to do it by lowering standards for most of the black kids so that you can have that number, ends up hurting the black kids. And there are studies that you aren't shown. I don't think anybody's going hoo-hoo-ha-ha and hiding them. But when black kids like that, for example, in California, when racial preferences were banned 25 years ago, started going to perfectly solid but not flagship University of California schools, they did better. Kids at UC San Diego who would have been admitted to Berkeley or UCLA and kind of treaded water, did excellently at UCSD. You would think that that would have been on the headline of every newspaper in the country. Nobody cared because what you were supposed to talk about was the racism of banning racial preferences. And that just won't do. A lot of black kids who are admitted to the selective schools would have a much better time and have much better grades. This also goes for law schools. If they were admitted to the second tier but excellent schools. And I think some people are thinking, why should they settle for the second tier? But there are all these people teaching and working at these second tier schools who think of themselves as being part of excellent institutions. What's so horrible about them? Why does everybody have to go to the top 32? And so this is a conversation we don't have because what we're supposed to talk about is solely racism, racism, racism. We must make these kids welcome. But often they'd feel more welcome at a school where they were being taught at a pace that they could keep up with. The conversation has to change.
A lot of things do end up being how a young person develops confidence. Like if you go into an environment and then you're told you're good at something, um, then you're like, ooh, let me do more of this, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, or if you show up and then you wind up with like C's and you're very hanging on, you'd be like, oh, you're like I, I shouldn't try. be doing this. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I'll tell a stupid story, but you know, like, uh, <laughs> like I, I think, uh, I, you know, I majored in economics in part because I took an economics course and I got an A in it. I was like, ooh, I may have, guess I'm good at this. Good at this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, I think people being in environments <laughs> where they, they're told like, hey, you're actually good at this. Make and, you, you know, a better person than going somewhere where you feel like there's something wrong with you. And no, the problem is that maybe for reasons connected with what we call systemic racism, maybe that's the reason, you weren't prepared for Harvard. That's not where you belong. You'd be better off at Rice. You'd be better off at the University of California, San Diego, and you'll have a grand old time. Maybe your kid can go to Yale. And does it really matter that much in the end? But we don't talk about that. Well, you certainly don't sound very Asian talking about this, man. I mean, John, if you go to an Asian parent and be like, hey, no, you know, right. you don't need to worry about Harvard. No, you'd like a rice and Sandy, see a day to go. They'd be like, they'd, they'd be like this, this man cannot teach my child. You, you, you labor under that, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing that we have this. And then the, the law school studies are so clear. If you go to a law school where you're taught at the, at the speed that you're used to being taught, you're more likely to pass the bar. You're more likely to get out of law school, but we don't talk about that. And so for example, what was it? Um, I've been doing the tour so long, I've forgotten where we are in time. It was last spring at Georgetown when a white professor said, when she thought nobody heard, it was at the tail end of a Zoom, uh -oh. and she says <laughs> to another professor that she's concerned that the black kids tend to cluster in the bottom quarter of the class. She didn't sneer it. She said, it's a problem. What are we going to do about this? And the other professor basically like nodded and said, yeah. Of course, she lost her job, and the other professor now doesn't work there anymore. But she was talking about something that's real. Everybody said, why, you racist? But nobody said, prove it. Is it that the kids are clustering at the bottom? And if they are, what's the reason? And it's not because they're dumb. If anything, it's like that that professor expressing concern should have been. She's supposed to be on the side of the angels. Yeah. And, you know, the kids who are clustering at the bottom, and I don't know anything about Georgetown Law School, but I know that that phenomenon would not be there if a lot of those kids were just at some other law school and getting law degrees and passing the bar. But the conversation was not allowed. The idea was just she's a racist. She has to go. That's fake. That is what. I hate to use this great graceless analogy. I've used it with Glenn Lowry, but there isn't one better. That is people peeing in their pants. That that is just it's it smells like that. And it's not real. Everybody watching that knew we're supposed to talk about why the black kids are clustering in the bottom and try to solve the problem. Instead, she was just fired for being a bad person. That was fake. Now, another problem you cite with this approach uh, is that it doesn't help black people themselves because it's leading them to try and define themselves by what white people think of them, um, which should not be the, 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 their, their primary uh, lens of the world. Here's where I get jealous of Asians, I must admit, because you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't feel like that's as much of an issue among Asian Americans that you define yourself based on what whites think of you. You think of oh, yourself. To ponder this you know? guy. Okay, just, sorry, continue, John. I'm gonna think about this. The idea that my sense of worth is based on whether a white person sees me fully, whether the white person insults me, 
whether the white person understands my humanity as exquisitely as black people do. That's my identity. And because white people don't see me fully, then my identity is how I grapple with that, how I position myself according to that, because they are in power and I'm a subordinate. My identity, my identity. Is that an Asian thing? Well, this is so very you tell deep me if I'm because it, no, because it, it 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 does make it seem like you're like th this approach actually subjects you more to <laughs> white authority. They and, win and, and, right. and per perception. Yeah. Um, okay, I I will reflect on this for a moment. As an Asian guy, mm -hmm. I don't think that much about what, <laughs> what, 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 what white people are what white, white people are thinking about me because I you know <laughs> because and this is going to sound this you know it might be uh, funny or self facing because I don't think they do think about me unlike well, the, the like like the average Amon. I mean you know like it, it's I've joked in another context like I, I've always felt like as an Asian guy you have sort of uh, an un invisibility cloak you can put on at any moment and so for us the problem is that we're uh, seen as kind of less masculine, unthreatening, like uh, not as American, like like that 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 sort of thing. Exotic. Um, yeah. Yes, but um, but I, I don't think Asians uh, think in those terms. Like we don't get upset um, on the regular about how we're perceived. My sense of it. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, black people feel that we're thought of as violent or angry, and so maybe that's different from being thought of as effacing and you know quiet. That might condition part of this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in my my case, growing up, um, so I, I would get really mad. I'd go to the gym. I'd study martial arts. Be all ticked off. I'd be one of those angry Asian guys in the gym. That was my my reaction. I don't know if you ever seen. I Us. I know what you mean. I'm, I'm thinking of a specific yeah. Right. You're an angry Asian guy, Fred. What's he doing now? Uh, hopefully, he's really positive. That, that response. Yeah, but it's just one of those things where my daughters are six and nine, and I think to myself, are they going to reach a point where they start defining themselves not as their wonderful selves, but according to how the white girls in their school don't see them? And I don't want that. Okay, yeah. I, so th th this is is so important. It's like no one should be defining their happiness by other people perceive them. No, it's a terrible way to live. No. It'll never work. You know, it'll never work. You're, everybody isn't going to like you. And yet, to an extent, even with you know we violent black people, to an extent, my thought often is white people aren't thinking about me at all. And that may be partly because I'm black, but that's fine with me because I like the people who do think about me and I'm busy. Well, well they, they, aren't, they aren't thinking about you at all because they're thinking about themselves, I think. So yeah. one of the things, so I was a very shy, introverted Asian kid. Um, and then maybe in sixth grade or, or, or at some point, I had this epiphany, which was that like, you know, I was all busy being self-conscious. Sixth grade. Yeah, it's like the other kids were busy thinking about how other people saw them. They, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, like like they Their clothes. Like yeah, they they were too busy trying to figure out how they were being evaluated. Uh, so you know, right. the extent that they were evaluating me, it was like very much secondary or tertiary. Yeah, um, was was this thing I I, I had? I, who knows? Maybe I was saying something that would make me feel better. But at, at that point, I think there was a point during my adolescence where I explicitly remember saying to myself that. Uh, I will never live according to how other people uh, or I think how other people see me. And so then it, this belief system you're talking about now, I'm realizing that it's, it's one reason why I find it um, so troubling. It's like, uh, you know, you can't live like that. You, you have to 
you have a, a hard enough job trying to figure out what makes you tick your own values, <laughs> what you care about, your relationships, being yeah. a good, yeah. you know, son, brother, friend, father, parent, like, like all that stuff's really, really tough. And it would be impossible if you layered on top of that. It's like, oh, how does this abstract group, uh, you know, evaluate me, see me? It, it's maybe one reason why yeah. I, I have felt somewhat, um, you know, uh, like less touched by, by some of like the, um, you know, the social media flagellation I might have received in like uh, moments in time. Um, and part of it, too, is that uh, it doesn't feel real to me in part because nine times out of ten, um, it would only happen online. Like if you're in person, someone, then they'd be like, oh, you notice you know. that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. the people who yell and scream like that on Twitter, most of them, if they were in a room with you, would never behave that way. There's something that happens to people when they're sitting there. And unfortunately, it's not just this person called the troll. I think a lot of people are thinking that the trolls are these people who look kind of like Danny DeVito and there's something wrong with them. It's not trolls. Often it's your friends. It's it's people who are like your friends. They're very ordinary people who will sit there on Twitter and rip somebody's entrails out and then go out and be perfectly normal people. That's the weirdest human impulse I think I have seen in my entire life. But it's there. But yeah, it's unreal. It's something somebody does with their fingers when they're alone. That didn't come out right. But it's not how they would behave <laughs> in a real social space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's certainly been my experience. And when I travel the country seeing people, too, I think of Americans as mostly good um, because I've been in a whole range of environments with thousands of different people. You've and, been in and, every state of it. Yeah, and they have been mostly kind and open and generous. Most people are. And, and cordial. Yeah. Um, and it's only when you uh, turn on your smartphone or watch our news media does everyone just seem so it's vicious yeah, 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 and, and, yeah. And, and fixated on um uh race and like some i mean uh, race is a very important thing but it's like you know people aren't obsessed uh, about it like uh, every moment of their day twitter like it's not real life and twitter is a bad neighborhood it, it's hard to remember that but yeah it's not real life and it's a bad neighborhood yeah <laughs>so, so you have a couple of scripts, which I really enjoy that you <laughs> recommend for trying to uh, address the elect with the giant proviso that um, that there's no convincing anyone. You cannot change uh, uh, of, of anything. Yeah. And so you have to try and navigate it and weaken it. Um, are you optimistic and you'd be the foremost authority on this? Are you optimistic that the fever is breaking, that uh, that uh, there are enough People are coming together being like, yeah, this stuff is, isn't working. It's not improving lives. It's scaring everyone. It's like, you know, like uh, driving people out of their own neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like do you think, and I, if, if the fever does break, mm -hmm. I genuinely think you'd be a big reason why. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind, but I can't imagine I would be that important. But I like that expression fever breaking because it would that's the perfect analogy and I do think it has broken I six months ago I wasn't sure seven or eight months ago but yeah I think as the pandemic has lessened at least temporarily and we've all kind of come out of our dens I think people are realizing yes systemic racism exists yes the racial reckoning has been good in some ways but we're allowing people to call the tune who are so far off to the side of what most of our concerns are that if we let these people win, we're gonna be living in an unrecognizable world. And so I'm seeing more and more people 
stand up to this kind of person. The idea is not to chase them out of the room. Unfortunately, they want to chase us out of the room. But I just say, for them, I want them to sit back down. It used to be that that kind of person was maybe one person at the party, one person at the faculty meeting, one person at Starbucks, one person contributing these extremist views and making you think about the way the world maybe should be. We were arriving at things by consensus, the grand old days of the early 2000 teens. Then social media messes it up and we have this elect kind of person with a mitre on their head, basically saying <laughs> that if you don't do it our way, we're gonna call you a white supremacist on Twitter, which is basically saying you have to do it our way. We cannot let those people run the world because frankly, they have a very narrow view of what it is to be an engaged person. They have very, very hazy plans as to how they would actually run the world. And frankly, I pity anybody who has to grow up in a world that is focused only on battling whites' hold on power differentials. That's just too narrow considering what a wide, wondrous thing human existence is. So yeah, at the end of the book, I give some scripts. And what it basically comes down to is just telling them no. And so if some small group of people in so, your organization. Some of these scripts are really funny to me. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't consider myself a white supremacist and nothing you say will convince me otherwise. <laughs> and don't hold, you know, don't look away. And that person then is going to call you a white supremacist on Twitter. Let them, you know, and just let it blow over and notice that it doesn't have as much effect as it used to. Yeah. Yeah. You, you also say, like, if you do this, then uh, I will call you out on Twitter. <laughs> try to take over my school with this, then I'm going to get a bunch of parents and we're going to call you a racist on Twitter. That's uh, right. I, I will not retract this innocent thing I said or wrote. And you can call me anything you want. <laughs> It's funny, funny hearing it read back to me, but I really mean those. The, yeah. the, these scripts are really, uh, really funny. I like this one, too. You're telling me I'm a racist, but I am more committed to actually helping poor people of color than you are. Mm -hmm. That is a very important thing to say, because the person's going to say, you're a racist. No, I'm helping black people. You're striking poses. And I insist on that. I think you know it deep down. And if you call me a racist on Twitter, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. If we say that enough to this sort of person, I think that slowly it will emerge among them that they can't just stand up and yell white supremacist and get what they want. And if they start knowing that, that's it. That means they've sat back down. They can say what they want, but they can't get what they want by saying that they're going to call you a racist on Twitter. We're allowing them to do that. And we don't want the world that they would have us stuck in if we just allowed that. Well, again, it's living in fear. I mean, who wants to live in fear? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I, and, and that I think is one of people's biggest frustrations with this time is that uh, good people, moral people uh, feel like they're going to lose their careers if they say the wrong thing uh, on a Zoom or the wrong which apparently has happened. I mean, you, I guess you pointed this out. <laughs> you know, Although, you know, Andrew, actually, I'm thinking a lot of that stuff is becoming a little 2020. These people who actually lose their jobs because they said the wrong thing, there's a pushback happening. And so there are people who would not have their jobs now who got hung by this sort of thing in, say, March 2021, who are still in their jobs, partly because of what I think is a backlash against the extremity. And that's what I hope this book is going to be part of, encouraging people to realize that that's not racism. That, that gives me hope. The person I thought of just now when you uh, related that was a young black woman named uh, Alexi. Um, I think her last name is Hammond. Um, she was hired by Teen Vogue and then she oh, lost her job because of right. a tweet she 
put out there that I think was uh, anti-Asian when she was 17 years old, by the way, a minor. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then X years later, she was going to take on this editorial position um, and uh, the offer was rescinded and she lost that job. Um, and I thought to myself, it's like, wait a minute. One, she was a minor. Two, she's a, a black woman. Three, she like, a, you know, it's like she was like, hey, apolog-. it's like, at what point do you just show some humanity and be like, look, like, who, where's the forgiveness? Right? Yeah, like, who wouldn't say something idiotic when they're seven, when you're, when, seven, when you're 17 years old? Like, she yeah. didn't know that, like, X years later, she'd end up, um, you know, like being uh, and a, most in a public Asian role people in the rest would of it. not be bothered by this. It's just a certain type of elect person who is speaking for Asians, I imagine, in getting rid of her and making it that she doesn't have her job. Most Asian Americans. I I will say, you know, I I would never claim to speak for an entire broad community, but I can say most Asians uh, like, you know, would not have heard about this controversy. It didn't hurt their feelings. They weren't like in their rooms crying over what this person said (laughs) when they were 17 years old. I mean, that's part of it too, is that nine times out of 10, the statement um, was just someplace and seen by nobody. Uh, You know what I mean? It's like, what harm was done um, 17 know. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. no, like, like, uh, like you know, 10 years the, ago. The fact of it is a stain upon this person's character. That's what I mean by the religious part, that that only makes sense if you're thinking about Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think these two pages or page and a half were some of like the, the best stuff I've read all year, where what you do is you place two statements uh, in uh, contrast to each other, both of which are being promulgated by people who are concerned about uh, the power di- differential, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, they are intellectually in opposition to each other. So I'll give you an example, and you know these well, you must have, have now said this over and over again, but <laughs> I, I thought this, like, uh, I, I found this to be brilliant, and... Uh, the catechism of contradictions, that's right. Yes, it's, uh, so for example, um, show interest in multiculturalism, very reasonable. Um, do not culturally appropriate when it is not your culture, it is not for you, and you may not try it or do it. You stay away. And right. so it's like, okay, I'm supposed to show an interest, and yet if I somehow go too far, then I, I will be and guilty of, of something. All, right. right. Mimic it. Right. Um, silence about racism is violence. It's like, okay, I need to say something. And then elevate the voices of the oppressed over your own, which is like, look, I can't say anything unless right. I am of the oppressed class. And some people say it's a happy medium, just don't say too much. But the thing is, it's so easy to be called saying too much. Where is that medium? Nobody is ever allowed to strike it. Exactly. You must strive eternally to understand the experiences of black people. You can never understand what it is to be black. (laughs) And if you think you do, you're a racist. You're racist if you think you get it. Right. Yes. Uh, So they, you can see why people are kind of like uh, tiptoeing, hot potatoing, um, through this, so that these uh, the, these statements, it is uh, to to me maybe the most powerful one. Black people cannot be held accountable for everything every black person does. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Um, all whites must acknowledge their personal complicitness in the perf- <laughs> perfidy of whiteness throughout history. And it's different because of power. And so if you if you have power, then you're all complicit. If you don't have power, everything is individual. Yeah. Who said you know, it doesn't make any sense it, again? And, and maybe it's because I've been around the country. But like that Iowa farmer in the diner would be like, you're complicit. Like I've been sitting here in the cornfields for eight generations. Like, you know, what the hell did I do? Yeah. Um, and, and and I will relate to as, as my experience. I mean, my 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 my. my, my <laughs> Parents immigrated here in the 60s as grad students. And mm-hmm. then, you know, like I, I was born in upstate New York um, in the 70s. 
Um, so we're relatively recent arrivals to this country. So, <laughs> so we, we get here. Complicit. Right. And of course, people would say, well, you're benefiting from the power structures that were set up. That's too abstract to make sense to more than about 10,000 people ever, I feel. And there are too many black people who need help for us to engage in that mental, here we go again, mental masturbation of this notion of complicitness. It makes a certain abstract sense if our life was a hard philosophical problem or some play, but it isn't. And it's time to knock it off. Yeah. Well, well, I would say for myself, as a the child of immigrants and a relatively recent arrival to this country in terms of multiple generations, I remember talking to a friend and him talking about his like you know great parents or great great grandparents. Um, and I think I thought to myself, it's like, geez, like you know. Imagine. Lord. Yeah, imagine. I was like, you know, my 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 parents grew up on a farm in Taiwan, and so like like when I think about what their grand like what their parents or grandparents, it's like I imagine they were on that farm. <laughs> you know, right. it, was, it, was, it was probably the same place. Um, but because of that background, I really appreciate being American a great deal because my parents came here and were like, hey, land of opportunity, like get educated, try, try and have opportunities. Right. Yeah, it's like to, to go from the farm to um, New York suburbs in one generation and then for, for me to go from those suburbs to, to the city and, you know, doing the things that, 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 that I'm doing. Yeah. You know, that there is some... Uh, um, awesomeness or magic uh, to to this country. Does it have deep problems? Yes. Uh, is racism very real? Yes. Should we be trying to um, uh, mitigate uh, the effects of racism and reduce inequality? In my opinion, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, like, is the intergenerational legacy of slavery? Uh, you know, like, is it destroying lives to this day? Yes. Uh, you know, like, so, like, you 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 can understand like the the depth of the problems. Um, but still have affection and uh, loyalty um, uh, to the country and say, like, we need to just try and solve the real problems. If there's intergenerational poverty in black neighborhoods, we should be investing a ton. And in my mind, like the, the way that I wanted to do it was just start giving uh, everyone my, <laughs> money, which, by the way, right. would end up helping uh, people with less more and uh, you know right. like like I might not be running around talking it's like help this group more than that group but if you just you know did something re relatively evenly, you get to do what you want to right exactly. yeah so that that was uh, always my perspective on it and it's something that when I, I do talk to people whose families have been in this country longer which is most people right. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like <laughs> you you do have like a different historical context that I I, I do try and appreciate um, but I, maybe it's because, you know, we're, we're recent arrivals. I'm always like, okay, what do we do now? What do we do now? Um, and this is where I line up with you 100%, which is like, okay, what you want me to do is apparently like monitor uh, turns of phrase and behaviors and, and perform certain uh, rituals uh, that demonstrate my <laughs> my, my uh, sensitivity and empathy to, like, that, 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 right. to this. And I'm like, I'm not sure how that helps. The, like that that person I just passed who, you know, is on the street. But mm -hmm. like, so or I could try and do something that I think is going to help um, the person on the street. And I, I very Which much opt for the latter. would be more important. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's a certain kind of black person, I would say middle class black person, who will tell you that they encounter racism every day, that their experience of life is a racist one. I disagree. And that person will say, well, how do you know? And I'm going to say, because I'm a middle class person and I've been one for a long time. Little stuff happens now and then. But the idea that racism is part of the American fabric to the extent that people like this are implying is a fiction. It's a melodramatic 
fiction, especially if you think about why people come here, how much better here is than anywhere else. And I think one of the things, I want to, in closing, I want to say one of the things that props up this fiction is the relationship between black men and the cops. And so my feeling is that to the extent that we have a major cop problem in this country in general, and that it is perceived, sometimes misperceived, but perceived as particularly a black problem, we've got to fix that because I think that one generation of black men nationwide who did not grow up thinking of the cops as the enemy would be a generation much less likely to fall for this elect way of seeing things. And I'd really like to see that happen. That's why I say no war on drugs, because I think that that would mean 90% less interactions between black men and the cops for all sorts of reasons. Vocational school, so that black men have steady and relatively lucrative incomes keeps you away from the cops. The cops are less likely. The cops aren't going to meet your kids. That, that'll do. That sort of thing means that the whole cop narrative goes away. And then I think we're in a position to have a more constructive and realistic conversation about race. And so, yeah, the idea of woke racism is to build something. It's not just a everybody, you know, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps book. It's not a book saying white people stop trying to help us. It's just saying help us for real instead of striking poses on stage. Channel those energies towards these things that might actually help some Real black people. kids in Philly or, you know, wherever, wherever Philly, it is. That's right. Which is my town. Yeah, yes. no, I just threw, threw <laughs> that out. Uh, amen. Uh, I can't wait for the sequel. It, it'll be. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no I, was, I, was, I was kidding. Next book is going to be, out, be about something fun. But I hope that people take a message from this book that I intended. If the fever does break, uh, in my opinion, uh, you'd be one of the big reasons why. Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. I thought this was a very important book and a, a great achievement and also very principled and courageous and I'm going to even say patriotic. So thank you, John. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Appreciate the heck out of you, sir. This is great. Thank you.